emphasize here is we want you to learn the Bible. So our ushers are going to come at this point. If you don't have a Bible, please take one. You're welcome to keep it. And if you have one, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 14, we rejoice. There are so many new folks coming. And while we welcome folks from other Bible preaching churches, we really are not trying, we, we, we really don't want to take people from other churches where they're learning the Bible. What we want to do is reach people who have not yet had the opportunity to learn how to have a relationship with Christ right from the Bible. And so it's, it's, it just delights me when people say, oh, I learned more today than in my whole religious experience, simply because they weren't reading the Bible. And so this morning, we're in the book of Romans. We're going verse by verse through the book. And if you're new today, you're very welcome. You probably will have some questions. But all of the, the previous sermons are available online. You can listen, kind of go watch the movie and get caught up. But the section that we're in in Romans in 12 through 16 is all about application. It's how Christians live together. So if you're not yet a Christian then this is sort of like putting the cart before the horse. It's not that these things are bad or you shouldn't do them, but they don't quite make sense because why we do things matters to God. So the things that we're going to learn about today are not things that, that you learn to find acceptance with God. We're going to learn these things because Christ accepts us when we become a Christian because he died for us. So what we're talking about is such an important chapter that what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a line on the way out and each one of you, I want to see this chapter in your Bible, and I want to know that it's well-worn. If it's not, if it comes open for the first time, I'm going to assume this is a new Bible. You wore out the other one. But interestingly, this chapter is so important, and yet um, not really talked about maybe to the degree that it should, because it dictates so much of our, our, our personal experience. So let me start with the big picture. When you become a Christian, God forgives you from all of your sins, but then Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I command. So there are commandments. There are moral absolutes, black and white. Sin is sin, okay? Jesus said, if you come to me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, you'll find rest for your souls. So it's not terribly demanding because Christ lives inside of us. The apostle John said, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So there are moral absolutes, like sexual sins that God says, hey, adultery is always sin, lying is always wrong, stealing. But there's a whole lot of in between that black and white of which we call gray areas. And these are the areas that Christians have different opinions on. Things like dancing and music styles and movies and whether you can drink alcohol or whether you can be in certain spheres or cursing, you know, if it's not an actual bad word, is this wrong? All of these gray areas, people come to the table with different opinions. And so what we're going to find and what we're finding in this chapter is that God is telling us how to interact as Christians with people who have different opinions on gray areas. Now, let me stress that. These are gray areas. These are things that the Bible doesn't clearly address. So if you're fornicating, if you're having sex and you're not married, that's sin. That's not a gray area, okay? But when it comes to so many of these other things, it's so interesting that much of what we believe is right or wrong is based on the church we came from or our parents or our backgrounds. So this chapter is essential for the Christian to say, hey, I need to formulate 
a philosophy of, of how God wants me to live in terms of these gray areas. And there's a great article online if you want to take a look at it. It's called 12 Principles for Disagreeing with Other Christians by a guy named Nasali. It's by Crossway. He has a book on the conscience. But I was looking at this. Um, someone sent it to me. And some of the principles I've, I've sort of adapted here for the, for the latter half of this uh, sermon. But last week we saw three things. Number one, don't judge or despise people who have a different view. So, if someone says to me, I think it's wrong to drink alcohol. And this guy over here says, I think it's right to drink alcohol. Both of these believers have to engage in, in, in a little bit different way. The person who has more liberty, this isn't bothering his conscience, needs to, the Bible says, don't despise the one who says it's wrong. So you don't go, he's a moron, he's legalistic, he's a jerk, right? And then the person over here who says, hey, he went to the movies, that's sinful. The Bible says, don't judge them. Don't you take the role of God and say, he's doing something wrong. So number one, we say we have to learn how to not judge or despise people who have different views on gray areas. Number two, we then saw in verse five that you have to make up your own mind. Paul said, one guy thinks you have to keep the Sabbath. One guy says, you don't have to keep the Sabbath. Be convinced in your own mind. So, so I can't take my cues from others. I can't go, well, they do it, must be right. Or he doesn't do it, it must be wrong. He says, be convinced in your own mind. And then the third thing we learned last week is, at the end of the day, I'm going to stand before God for my conscience. So it's not so important what you think of me or I think of you. Paul says, we all must stand before the judgment seat of God. Then we're going to give an account. But now we're going to pick up how I have to relate to others in regards to the decisions I make. Once I formulate my opinion, right, the first thing we're going to learn this morning is don't let your freedom destroy a weaker brother. Okay, so let's pray, and then we'll look at verse 13 through 15. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Bible. Please guide us as Christians to learn how to engage with other Christians who have a different view of gray areas. May the Holy Spirit help us to grow as Christians and those who are seekers in our service. May they learn what it means to become a Christian and to experience the joy of having their sins forgiven and becoming born again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Look at verse 15. Paul says, therefore, let's not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, did anybody slip or fall this week? Can some of you think back to the last time you fell? A lot of times, we just fall because we're dorks, right? I just slipped on the step. Nothing, nobody's fault but mine. Yesterday, my grandson and I were playing. There was a piece of paper on the kitchen floor, and he whew, just, bam, fell, right? Now, if I fall and it's my fault, I just am like, I'm a dork. But if I fall because the dog left his ball there or because somebody left the piece of the vacuum out, I get bugged, don't you? In fact, a couple years ago, we got a new sliding glass door. And the whole frame was installed. Now, our old sliding glass door, it was all at, at ground level. So I could slide outside, right? But the new one that was put in, the first time I went to go out the door, it had like a one-inch metal lip that came up from the floor. I tripped on that. I'm going flying out the steps, about to land on my concrete patio. So I grabbed the door. I ripped the whole screen door off. I bend it. I fall to the ground. And I'm, I'm furious at the contractor. I call him up. I go, this is not going to work. I said, 
I want, just like the old one, I want it to be ground level because to have a one-inch lip every time I go out the door, I'm going to fall. And he says, hey, listen, that's standard now. They're all like that. And you go, okay, well, he didn't put it there on purpose. But if somebody actually put something out there to trip you, you'd be mad, right? So Paul says, here's what we're going to do. Don't judge one another anymore. So here's a starting point. A number of people last week literally said to me, you know, one person, a dear older brother, he's here today. He wouldn't mind me saying this. He goes, I realized after last week's sermon, I was judging people. I was telling people, you can't drink. You can't do this. I was a good judge of other people. You shouldn't watch movies. So what God's asking you to do is take off your robe. You're no longer God's. You're no longer serving alongside God as a judge. Turn in your gavel and just worry about yourself. You can't go back and do it and figure out, don't do it anymore, okay? So if somebody says, well, you have to wear a suit and tie to church or you're not pleasing to God, stop it. Don't judge people anymore. But then he says this, but here's what you want to determine. Don't put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, obstacle, that was a pretty standard word for just putting a stone or something that would trip. But this word stumbling block in the New Testament is a really interesting word. Jesus introduced this. It's the Greek word scandalon. And literally, it was originally used of a trap that was used to catch something alive. We had a bunch of groundhogs last year. And so I think between me and my neighbor, we trapped like 10 of them and took them. They say you have to take them five miles. I'm driving five miles so he won't find his way back. I don't know who measured that, you know. Four and a half, is that good, you know? But anyway, but the word took on a connotation of doing something that leads other people to sin, okay? Now, you can do that on purpose, or you can do that by accident. But let me read to you what Jesus said about scandalons or stumbling blocks, because he was very serious about this. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 7, woe to the world because of a stumbling blocks. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If you cause one of the little children who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for you that a heavy millstone be hung around your neck. So when people say to their little kid, here, want to smoke a little pot? You know, you might as well just get a big rock, put it around your neck and say, it'd be better to be thrown in the ocean than when you stand before God. So this idea of causing someone else to sin, it's incredibly hideous when you do it on purpose, right? Like, I remember one time a guy walked up to me after I was a Christian. I was in seminary. I'm cleaning the swimming pool, and he goes, hey, dude, if you smoke some of this weed, you'll smile, right? And I go, if you repent of your sins, Jesus will forgive you. (laughs) I don't think he was ready for that one. (laughs) So he goes, the force be with you, right? I'm like, what? (laughs) I don't even follow that. But this idea of of putting a stumbling block, it's not that we're intentionally going, I want someone to roll their ankle. It's not that we're intentionally going, I want someone to sin. It's simply saying, if I do something in front of a Christian brother who he thinks is wrong, I am tempting him to violate his conscience. And in causing someone to violate their conscience, I'm harming them. So look what the text says. Paul goes, look, I get it. Verse 14, I know and and convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean, or I'm sorry, that that, um, 
Nothing is unclean in itself. Now, here's what he means, especially because they were talking about food. This is probably Jewish people. Now, these were Jewish people going, God says don't eat pork, right? And that was true, but it wasn't because pork is evil. It's because God had given the, the Jews some certain things that would distinguish them from the other nations. This was just to show that we're set apart for God. There's nothing immoral about pork. So when Christ came to earth, he changed that law. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, it's not what you eat in your mouth that defiles you, it's what comes out of your heart. And then Mark says this, thus Jesus pronounced all foods clean. But this was not easy for Jews. Peter heard Jesus say that, but in Acts chapter 10, Jesus had to bring down a sheet in front of him with a menu on it. And on the menu were pictures of pork. And Jesus says, Have, help yourself. And Peter goes, by no means, Lord, I'll never eat anything unclean. And God goes, if I called it clean, don't you call it unclean, right? And, it, and Peter had to wrestle with that, like, what? It's not unclean anymore? So when Paul says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, the phrase, am convinced, that took him time, right? Paul was a good Jew. The day he got saved, he didn't go, man, I've always wanted to eat a hot dog. Over time, as he listened to Jesus and scripture, he became convinced that God doesn't care what kind of food you eat. But he says, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, it is unclean. So if a person's gone, ah, I, I'm not supposed to eat that, it is wrong for them to eat that. And Paul's point is, so why would you grab your ham sandwich right in front of them? Because now you're saying, come on. Come on, you can do it too. And here's what happens. He says, if, if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Now, what does he mean by hurt? Like, usually people who violate their conscience, they'll go, you hurt me. But this is a strong word. This word means to be grieved or deeply distressed. It's really interesting. This is the same word that's used in Ephesians 4 when it says, don't let unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't, God, for a Christian, doesn't arouse his anger like, I'm so mad at you, Christian. It grieves him when we sin. But, but if I cause someone to violate their conscience, I'm bringing them emotional distress. I'm harming them. I'm hurting their soul. And, and it makes sense when you think about it because it's hurting their relationship with God. And Paul says the moment you do that, you're no longer walking according to love. You know what? I think if we all just took that phrase and put that on our door, are you walking according to love every day before we went out the door? Wow. Imagine how much different the way we interacted with other people. Because we saw that in Romans 13. That's a big picture. God says what matters is that we become a loving person. This is fulfillment of the law that we learn how to love other people. This is what Jesus is producing in us. It's not that we're Bible scholars. The Bible says the goal of our instruction is to have love from a pure heart. And coming to church and learning the word of God and meeting with other Christians, if it's not making you and me a more loving person, then Houston, we've got a problem. The Bible's not supposed to make, make you more legalistic and strict and mean or who cares what other people have. I have my rights. That's the whole thing. We're supposed to be walking in love toward other Christians. So Paul says, don't destroy with your food 
him for whom Christ died. Now, when he says destroy him, what does that mean? Well, I don't think it could cause a true Christian to lose their salvation, but you've trashed them in their walk with God. Well, how? Well, you and I both know that when we violate our conscience and when we begin to do things that we know are wrong, man, that's a sad way to live, isn't it? It's a, it's a painful way to live. And that's what Satan wants to do with you. If you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, I got saved and I, and I wasn't doing that stuff, but now I'm doing it again. And my life is miserable. I mean, think about how it destroys them. They're not witnessing anymore because they feel so defeated. They're not helping other Christians because they're covered with shame and guilt. They're just absorbed. And Satan's going, well, what's the big deal? You already did this. You might as well do that. And they're just spiraling into this bad place. And that's what Satan wants to do with Christians. And that's why the Bible says, be sober because Satan's prowling about seeking to devour you. He wants to lead you into a place of guilt and shame and defeat. And what's the difference? I'm not going to go to church anymore. I might as well just keep doing this stuff. Why would we want to do that? Paul goes, this is a guy for whom Christ died. That's a great way. That's a great template to kind of put over Christians who annoy you, right? Instead of looking at them as, oh, they're so annoying, just, just, just bring the template down that says, this is a brother for whom Christ died. What a, what a way to look at people. If, if he was that important to Jesus, that Jesus hung on that cross for him and thought about him, right? Then could I at least afford him that little bit of grace to say, hey, if Christ died for my wife, then why should I say, if I want to watch this show, I'm watching it. Don't stay in the room then if you don't like it, right? Think about how we, we can look at other Christians as, hey, that person might not be my favorite saint, but Christ died for them. He's my brother. Christ loves them and he loves me. So Paul says, therefore, don't let what is for you a good thing be spoken evil of. Now, when he says, don't let what is for you a good thing, it could be the gospel itself. Don't let the gospel be spoken evil of. Because people are like, look at those Christian hypocrites. But it could be just your choices. You know that it's okay to play cards or have a drink. It was, it was just interesting. Last Sunday, people were like, my parents, we had to hide the wedding pictures because... We had dancing and some Christian. We weren't allowed to play cards. Someone came to my house and rebuked me for going to the movies. So, so these are, if, if you're sure that there's nothing wrong with that, then it's no, why would we make a big deal? But if others are speaking evil of it, then why would you want to flaunt that? So notice his advice. He says, because think about it. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, that wasn't exactly what I would have thought Paul to say. You're like, Paul, what's the kingdom of God have to do with this? Okay? Paul did not talk a lot about the kingdom of God. He wrote 13 letters. He only mentioned the kingdom of God 14 times in all of them. Jesus and the gospel writers talked a lot about the kingdom of God. Matthew, for example, the book of Matthew mentions the kingdom of God 55 times. But when Paul does mention the kingdom of God, it's important that we sort of do some some, some thinking about what does the Bible teach about the kingdom of God, okay? And there's a couple basic things. First of all, the kingdom of God in its broadest sense is God's eternal reign, okay? The moment God brought his 
kingdom into existence, the Bible says that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He reigns over everything. There was never a time that God's not king of the universe, okay? Now, a human king, he's only valuable. He needs his kingdom to make him valuable. God's king whether he has any subjects or not. He's rich before he created everything. So he's eternally the king. But then there are levels in the Bible or different aspects of the kingdom of God. So when God was dwelling on earth with Adam, it would be safe to say that the kingdom of God was on earth because God was ruling perfectly over all of his subjects. But when Satan and then Adam and Eve sinned, it's as though the kingdom of God was withdrawn from earth and taken up to a place that we call heaven. So in a certain sense, the the kingdom of God is in heaven. And that's why Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, pray, O God, let your kingdom come. Bring heaven back to earth. Well, what's different about the kingdom of God in heaven and the kingdom of God on earth? Well, he told us. He said, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth like it's being done in heaven. So right now in heaven, God's perfect will is being done by everybody up there. Angels, the souls of those who have parted. There's joy and peace and righteousness. All is well in heaven. Meanwhile, down here on earth, the Bible calls the kingdoms of this world under the powers of darkness, under Satan's authority. And so we live in this dark world where the kingdom of God has not completely come to dominate. But there's an in-between aspect. And some theologians call it already, but not yet. When Jesus came to earth, he spoke about the kingdom of God now being in our midst. He spoke about the present realities that now that the king is here in all of his power and glory, things are changing on earth. So there is a present aspect of the kingdom of God going on right now. But it's limited to those who have submitted to Christ. If you're a believer, the day you became a believer, this is what God said. Paul said in Colossians 1, you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus. Right? So so think about the tension here. The kingdom of God is coming. When Jesus comes back, he's not coming and holding um, election. Will you vote for me? When he comes back, the Bible says he will come on a, on a white horse and written on his thigh as king of kings and lord of lords. And he will slay all of his enemies with the breath of his mouth. And he will rule with a rod of iron. And anyone who has not bowed to his lordship will be destroyed. Depart from me into everlasting fire. But all those who have come to Christ, the Bible says, he will say to you, Enter into my kingdom. So as we wait for Christ (coughs) to bring the kingdom to earth, in between that time, we are to live in this evil world as kingdom subjects. So we're supposed to be different from how unbelievers live because we got a different king. We got a different way that we look at life. So while people say if somebody hits you, Punch him in the face. Jesus goes, no, if you're going to be one of my kingdom kids, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who turn the other cheek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. 
So I think that's what Paul has in mind here when he says, listen, the way we treat other Christians is important because what matters to God is we're kingdom livers. (coughs) And kingdom livers are not about what you can eat or what movie you can watch, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what kingdom people promote now. And it's really interesting because there's sort of a dual aspect of this. In one sense, the gospel produces the three fruits of positional kingdom, meaning this. The day I came to Christ, I received his righteousness. The day I came to Christ, I was put at peace with God. Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The day I came to Christ, I received the initial joy of the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, when Paul's saying, hey, every Christian, this is why we've been saying rehearse the gospel. Remind yourself, you are right with God. You are at peace with God, and you have the joy of the Holy Spirit. But there's also an ethical element saying this is what we're supposed to do. If you're a Christian, promote righteousness. Teach your children to do right. Live doing right. Promote peace. When you know that you're not getting along with someone, do what you can to have peace between them. Let the peace of God rule among you. And then promote joy in the lives of other Christians. This is how Paul lived. I love this verse. When Paul was in prison, he said, you know, I'd love to die and go to heaven right now. He says, that would be far better. But he says, I'm going to stay around here on earth. And you go, why, Paul? Why would you want to stay around? And this is what he said to the Philippians. For your progress and your joy in the faith. What a different mindset. The world says, I'm living for my happiness and what I can get from my good-looking wife and my great job and my acclamations and my stuff. Kingdom livers go, I'm not here for me. I'm here for Jesus. And along the way, I hope I can bring joy and blessing to my kids and my family and others. So the kingdom of God is righteousness. We're helping people do what's right. It's peace. We're, we're growing. In, so if you've got issues with other Christians or with your spouse, stop it. Repent. Forgive each other. And, and pray that you will produce the joy and, and be an instrument of joy in the lives of others. And Paul says, because if you serve Christ in this way, if your goal is, hey, I don't come to church for what I get out of it. I meet with other Christians so I can bless them and encourage them. Help one another learn to do what's right. He says that's acceptable to God and approved by men. So you go, okay. Point number one, don't let my freedom destroy a weaker brother. Now point number two, my B, I forgot to tell you. Because some of you are, are doing what I said, taking notes. The dullest pencil has been the sharpest memory. The second point, I just said it. I just developed it. I just didn't say it. So I'll say this. Kingdom living is about building others up, not tearing them down. Kingdom living is about building others up, not tearing them down. And we saw that in 16, and we're going to go down through verse 21. So, so Paul says, so listen, here's the deal. Christians, let us... Now, when, when this verse says, so then we pursue the things, most translations, this is a word in Greek that could be translated two different ways. Same word, it could be translated... So most translations don't say, so then we pursue. They go, let us pursue. And that word pursue means you got to go hard after this. So if nothing else, you're going, what does God want me to do? He says, you need to pursue things that make for peace. So men, when you go home, are you a peacemaker in your home? 
When you go to work, when you get around with other Christians, do you stir it up? Or do you pursue the things that make for peace? And secondly, pursue the things that build one another up. See, this is so important. God considers Christians little buildings. And at the end of our service, we're going to sing, Lord, prepare me a sanctuary. And then we're going to sing, help me to build your sanctuary. Every one of us is a little building. In fact, Paul says in verse 20, don't tear down the work of God. See, God, when you become a Christian, he's building you up in your faith. He's helping you to grow stronger, more like Jesus, free and loving and useful and serving him. Satan is trying to tear you down. Somebody once said, it's like crabs in a basket. You ever been crabbing, right? You throw a bunch of crabs in a basket. If that basket starts to get full, and they're all trying to get out, right? They're trying to, and crabs are climbing up sideways. You ever notice this? When one gets to the very top, the other crabs don't go, 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 go. You can get out of this. Don't be like us. They pull each other back down. And sometimes that's how Christians treat one another. Pursue the things that build each other up. In fact, when he uses this word build up, it's the, it's the Greek word that we translate edification. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, this is what Paul said. Every time Christians get together, he said, you should do things like this. Bring a psalm, bring a tongue, bring a teaching, bring a revelation. Then he said this. Everything should be done for edification. So if somebody walks out of church and he goes, I didn't get nothing out of it, don't say that to me because I'll say, well, that's not what you were supposed to come for. Did you bring anything to the game? Did you encourage anybody? And so one of the ways that we edify is we, is we speak loving words into one another's lives. And we share scripture with one another. Paul said, whenever you assemble, this is why we want you to be in small groups. He says, share scripture with one another. Share psalms so you build each other up. Here's an example. This week I was sitting with one of our brothers, Don Cheney. He and I worked together. Went to his office. I said, Don, I need you to pray with me about something. My heart's kind of heavy about something. I'm kind of distressed about this. And you're like, the pastor gets worried? Yeah, I'm a sinner just like you. And so he prayed with me. And then he did something really cool. About an hour later, I got an email. And this is what it said. Hey, Tom, Psalm 97, whatever. When my anxious thoughts multiply in me, oh God, your comforts delight my soul. He just edified me. And when you, when you encourage somebody, say something nice to them or pray for them or share a scripture with them, you're building them up. Matter of fact, see this little thing right here? Your mouth is your number one tool of edification. So Ephesians 4.29, this would be a good one for somebody to have on your mirror, on your refrigerator, on your door. This is even higher level. It says, don't let rotten words come out of your mouth. Only good speech that edifies others. You're like, I practically have nothing to say then. <laughs> Fine. Bible says even a fool looks smart if he keeps his mouth shut. So think about how how important it is to build each other up. Think back to your third grade teacher who said, you're a really good artist, Billy. You never forgot that. Healing, edifying words, scriptures and encouragement go so far. So Paul says, let's pursue these things that edify. Let's not pursue things that tear each other down. All things are clean, but they're evil for the man who eats and gives a friend. So why do I want to rip somebody else down and say, I have a right to do it? Okay, the last two things. Verse 22 
Paul's going to teach us something pretty straightforward. If you're free, don't flaunt it. And if you're strict, don't expect it of others. All right? Here's what he says in verse 22. Let's go to the next verse. He says, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. So, if you have the freedom to go, I don't feel like I'm sinning if I have a beer, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you this. If you get drunk, you don't even have to wonder if you're sinning. The Bible says drunkenness is a sin. Substance abuse is a sin. And the Bible says no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of God. You need to repent of that, okay? But if you have the conviction that it's okay to have a beer or a glass of wine, or it's okay to watch a movie that someone else might say, oh, that's wicked. Paul says, have it as your own conviction. Don't flaunt it. So if someone comes over your house, don't, don't say, hey, how about a beer? Or, hey, you want to watch this movie? Or maybe they think all rock music's wrong. Oh, that's stupid. I'm, I'm jamming on my tunes. Come on. I have my rights. Paul goes, have as your own conviction. You don't, have to, you don't have to flaunt your convictions before everybody and just say, I could do what I want. You know, people come to me and say, oh, Pastor Tom, why don't you wear a tie? Give God your best. And I go, hey, I respect that. If you want to wear a tie because you believe that's giving God your best, that's fine. But, but you're not going to show me from the Bible that wearing a tie to church is, is required. So, so, so we go, all right, I don't want to flaunt my freedom, but if I'm strict, how can I expect it from everybody else? That's the point. Have it as your own conviction before God. So if you don't want to watch a movie, that's all right. But don't tell anybody who watches movies is of the devil. See? Just keep it to yourself because you're going to stand before God. And then the last principle is pretty straightforward. If, if you follow your conscience as a Christian, you're blessed. Okay? You want to be blessed? Just follow your own conscience. Stop worrying about what other people do. Paul says, happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. Now, I don't like the translation happy here because the Greek word is makairos, which means blessed. And there's a difference between blessed and happy. Unbelievers can be happy. I got a new car. I got a good-looking girl. You know, I just got a promotion. Right? You can be happy without being blessed. But when you're blessed, that's a spiritual thing. You have peace with God. Your relationship with God is being blessed by the Lord. The hand of the Lord is upon you. And so the Bible says, blessed is the person. He, he, he's at peace with God because he's not violating his conscience. So what God's telling you is, if in doubt, don't. He who doubts is condemned if he eats. Not because meat is bad or because the movies are bad or because having a beer is bad, but because you're violating your conscience. Your eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So the, the whole of Christian life is a life of faith. It's a life of trusting God and depending on God and, and being accepted by God. So this is the entryway. You want to get right with God? You got to get right with God by faith, not by works. So some of you got it. This has been beaten into you in your, your I'm not going to name the church, but you know what I'm talking about, where week after week, you did this, and you better not do that, and it's, you've been beaten into you. You get right with God by being good. That's not what the Bible says. You get right with God by faith in Christ. And so when, when I stand before God, I'm not going to go, I hope I was good enough. I'm going to stand before him and say, thank you, Lord, that you received me through Christ. But in the same way, my whole life, I have to think the same thing. 
if God approves of me through Christ and he accepts me through Christ for my salvation, is, is he okay with me drinking this? See, and if I can't by faith have that same sense that this is acceptable to God, then I must say, hey, for now, if I'm not certain that that behavior is acceptable, then I'm no longer living by faith. I'm no longer trusting that God's approval of me is coming through Christ. So anything that I, that, that, that I think is wrong, Paul just says, hey, you'll be blessed by the Lord. If, now, your conscience can change over time as you study Scripture and you go, oh, I was so silly. I grew up in a church where they told me I have to wear a dress, and I used to tell everybody you're sinning if you don't. But as you grow and you realize, wait, that's not really what the Bible says. Your faith may, may expand. Your faith may change. But wherever you are in that stage, stay there in that sense of saying don't violate your conscience. So this morning, Benjamin's going to come, and we're going to sing, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. In other words, build me up, Lord, a loving sanctuary where the Holy Spirit's living through me. This church is growing not because we've got signs and billboards and tracks and we're giving free TVs. It's because Christians are living godly, loving lives and people are going, that's what I want, right? So I want to be a sanctuary. But then we're going to say, Lord, not just prepare me to be a sanctuary, but Lord, help me to build your sanctuary. Prepare me to build your sanctuary. I'm going to really focus on encouraging other people, being careful with my spouse, my kids. If you're not in a small group, if you're not meeting with other Christians somewhere, Lord, prepare me to build your sanctuary. And then finally, Lord, prepare me to be a missionary. See, we're all going to go out this week and try to live for Christ and, and, and to make the gospel look good. So real quick, number one, has there anybody that God's bringing to your mind that you've been tearing them down? You say, yeah, you should have heard what I said to my spouse before we came here. Or you should, I went off on my so-and-so. Listen, if you've been tearing people down, would you be humble enough to, to go and ask forgiveness? And then number two, when was the last time you remember building anybody up? Like, will you consciously say, Lord, this week, help me to build up my spouse. Yeah, they got faults, so do I, but I want to focus on their assets. I want to share encouraging things. Help me to build into the lives of others, which means I'm going to get involved in church, not just show up on Sunday. Third, what freedom might you have to say, you know, God, as much as I know that it's not wrong, I'm willing to abstain from that in certain situations, certain times, because I don't want to hurt somebody else. And then, how are you and your conscience getting along? Oh, man, he's clubbing me. He's killing me. All right, well, happy is he who doesn't violate his conscience. Then ask God to forgive you and, and get back in a place of saying, I only want to do what I believe you approve of. And then finally... If faith is what makes us right with God, then who's ready to come to Jesus today? You say, well, I thought I had to be a good person to clean up my life. No, you don't. You need to repent and turn to Christ and believe. Look to the Lamb. He paid it all, and you can be saved this morning. And if you want to do that, let us know. On your way out, I've got a little booklet I want to give you. Tell somebody you came with, I want to be right with God by faith. All right, let's stand together, and we're going to sing, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. 
thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for you prepare me to build your sanctuary Lord prepare me to build a sanctuary pure and holy tried and true with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for you and to be a missionary Lord, prepare me to be a missionary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary. thank you for the opportunity to hear your word to be built up in our faith this morning i pray that we would go out and do the same to speak truth and love to love each other to point each other to christ in jesus name we pray amen